0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is Ephesians 1 1 through 2. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this magnificent morning that we've been able to come together, to worship together, to love you as a family, as a body of believers, as your church in this location in Denver. We pray for our time this morning as we look to your word that we will be enlightened by your word these words of Paul, that we will grow in them, that we will live them. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I remember many years ago when I was young, and I grew up up in the 1970s and went to college in the 1980s and graduate school during the 80s. I remember I had to study history. Now, some of you I know like history, and others don't like history at all. But I remember studying history, and initially it didn't seem relevant to me and the needs that I had and what I needed to know to live in this world. But I studied it nonetheless. And the more I studied history, the history of the ancient civilizations that go back to the Sumerians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians, all up to the time when Christ came in the first century in the Jewish nation, Uh, was established there and what Christ did and what Paul did, and even through history, the Middle Ages, to the time of the Renaissance and the Reformation, and what Martin Luther did then, up to the time of the American Revolution when our country got started, the Civil War when our country was initially divided but reunited, and then it came through the time of the Vietnam War, World War II, the Vietnam War. And I remember the realization that I now understood the point of all of history. The point of all history was me. Everything led up to me in my time in my life. And I think a lot of young people kind of think that way. When we look back at all of history, nothing comes after me. It's kind of like Forrest Gump when he's on that road running across the United States. He runs all across America and finally gets to the Santa Monica and he stands out there looking over this magnificent scene. And I realize that I am the Santa Monica Pier. Everything led up to me and my time and my world. And you might remember also the preaching of the 1970s and 80s. that uh, Everything was coming to an end. Christ returned. Things were going to collapse. The world would come to an end. This past week, Deanne and I had two new grandchildren born. Uh, One in Indiana and one in Hawaii. She just got back from a long trip to Indiana. And then as you get older, you realize it doesn't all lead up to you, that you're simply a stepping stone in a path of history and that history is going to move on beyond you. And I think the older I get, and perhaps the older you get, you begin to feel like maybe everything isn't always only about me and who I am. And that's kind of where I think I'm at today. This past week with these two new babies born, and I've got a seventh one on the way in November, you begin to think that maybe there's generations that follow you. There's people that come after you. And you wonder, what's the point of this life? How can I really put my life in this world in a clear focus? Now, we spent the last 20, I think, two weeks studying the book of Ephesians, and you've heard numerous sermons on Ephesians. Today, as Lars said, we're going to do something of an overview of this book to kind of remind ourselves what the forest looks like. We've looked at the trees, and as I do this summary today, we're going to look at it from a high level, 30,000 feet. If I were to look at it in detail, it would take about 22 sermons. But we're going to go a little, skim it a little bit higher. But you might be wondering, why do we spend so much time thinking about a book written to a culture and a people 2,000 years ago in a world very different from ours, the ancient world of Ephesus and the Roman Empire. We live in a world with automobiles, with aircraft, with a device in our pocket that we can connect to anybody in the world. We can find any piece of information with just a tab of our thumb. All of that's available to us. What can we learn from what Paul writes to these people 2,000 years ago? They didn't have automobiles. They couldn't fly across the country. They had to walk. They walked the roads. They traveled the seas, but they did so slowly. How can we learn from this book of Ephesians? Now, Paul writes to this world. And I want to just take a moment to think about what the world was that Paul was writing to. What was Ephesus really like? Who were these people? And what similarities might we have to them after all? When Paul went on his first missionary journeys, he traveled the world. And we know the first missionary journey, he left Jerusalem and traveled through the interior of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey... And he went back to Jerusalem. But then on his second missionary tour, and on his third missionary tour, traveling with uh, Barnabas and Silas, respectively, he began to spread out further. Now, he went to a number of cities. On his second missionary tour, he went to uh, Troas, a great historical city. He went to Philippi, which would soon become the second largest city in the world at that time, Philippi. And then to Athens, which had this great old history of the philosophers and the temples and all that was in Athens. But when he finally came, first to Corinth and then to Ephesus, Paul planted himself there for several years. Paul saw in Corinth and in Ephesus something unique, a reason to be there. So let me just talk a minute about uh, uh, Corinth. What was Corinth like? Who were these people in Corinth? Now you think, if you have a in your mental picture of your head of what Greece is, Corinth sat there in this little isthmus. It's like a a land bridge between the two great gulfs of the Mediterranean Sea. And Corinth was a town that lived on this little isthmus. And those who were uh, traveling from east to west were able to come to this point of Corinth, on one side of it, and then pick up their boats and travel three easy miles, carrying their boat and their luggage and whatever they had, and then land on the other side and then sail on either towards the Italian peninsula and Rome or go the other way uh, to uh, Turkey or Ephesus, where we're at now. And so Corinth was a place where much of civilization funneled through it. When Paul gets to Corinth, what does he find there? He finds a city full of sailors, full of merchants, full of people traveling and doing things. And he says, this is a place that I want to stay. He also found there are a number of people who came for healing. The uh, temple of uh, Escalapis was there, and he went And these people would go to Corinth to be healed. They looked for healing powers at this temple. He also found a number of people there that came for other reasons. There was what's called the Isthmus Games. We know what the Olympics are. This was comparable to that. We have our modern day Olympics. These were games that were held, Panhellenic. People from all over the ancient world came to Corinth for these games. And so we had people traveling there. In the year 51, Paul was there when these games were held. And Paul talks about his experience in Corinth. Now, there was one other element to Corinth that we know about that may have been a great attraction for Paul, and that was its immorality. It was a degraded town. In fact, the word Corinth, to Corinthianize, would be used as an adjective to describe somebody who lived a very debauched life that was celebrated in many ways in Corinth. Paul saw this characteristic. Corinth is a place where people moved Uh, people travel through, and when he set up shop in Corinth and began to build a church there, he knew one thing, that his preaching there could spread the gospel throughout the world without Paul ever having to leave town, because those who came there would hear him preach and would take it back to where they came from, and Paul even talks about the gospel reaching to what he called Elikrium, which is uh, modern-day Bosnia, Albania, up there uh, in that area. And so the gospel is being spread. He then left Corinth and went to Ephesus. And we find the same thing in Ephesus in many ways. Ephesus was a town with its great temple to Artemis. It was a town with a great historical bent to it. The town of Ephesus uh, was founded 1,000 years, 1,200 years before Paul, even earlier than that. But it became a great town uh, even in that age. Now, by the time of Paul, the Roman Empire had spread. And when Rome decided it needed a capital for the province, which was Asia, modern-day Turkey, it chose Ephesus. Now, when you think about Ephesus again, it was full of pagans. We talk about the pagan religions. We talk about people who worshipped many gods, polytheistic. And all of the ancient world, other than the Jews, all of them were polytheists. All of them worshipped many gods. And there could be gods that created. There could be gods of the oceans, gods of the tree, gods of the earth, gods of our family, all these different gods. And so Ephesus was a town where paganism and all of these religions thrived. Paul also saw in Ephesus a great intellectual history. Ephesus had in it a great library, a library built by Celsus, a three-story library that's been recently reconstructed from stones laid on the ground, rebuilt. And you can see it was a great center of learning. Its history goes way back. Its first philosophers, the first philosophers that even modern scholars recognize, came from a place called Miletus, which is just a short trip from Ephesus nearby. And so the Ephesians understood the Milesian or Ionian philosophers. Thales, Anaximander, Anaximenes, these were the guys who asked the first questions about the nature of reality. What really is all of this? And they actually answered in a very modern way that there's one substance that makes up everything. They found a unity in this great diversity of the world. And so Ephesus had this great tradition of philosophy, of thinking, of thought, of science. Herodotus, the great first historian in all of history, lived nearby as well. In Halicarnassus, history was built out of Ephesus. And then Hippocrates lived nearby in the island of Kos, uh, where medicine got its uh, beginning. And so Paul, when he's in Ephesus, realized, and he talks in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he writes back to the Corinthians and tells them, I'm going to stay here a while because I see great opportunity in my adversity. Paul could stand in Ephesus and, metaphorically speaking, he could look west to Rome and preach to the Roman Empire and say to them that Caesar is not God. And by then, that's what the Caesars were claiming to be. Dominus et Deu, Lord and God. That's who Caesar was. Paul could look west to Rome and say, Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And he could look east towards Jerusalem and remind them that through the Jews, through Christ, we have our Messiah. And so Paul could reach both the Gentiles, the pagans, and the Jewish people, all who came to this point in Ephesus. Now, while he's in Ephesus, we learn from Acts chapter 19, he faced much adversity. There was a man there by the name of Demetrius. Demetrius was a silver smith. He used to make these uh, uh, votives, these little uh, images of the great temple of Artemis. And that was a thriving business. And there were many in Ephesus because of this great temple of Artemis, the great uh, mother goddess, uh, they would come to Ephesus to worship at this great temple. Now, the great temple of Artemis was a magnificent building, four times larger than the Pantheon or the Parthenon in Greece, in Athens. In fact, uh, one writer, uh, Antipater of Sidon, writes about the seven great wonders of the ancient world. He talks about the great Giza pyramids, for example, which in Paul's day were already 2,600 years old. They're older than we are going back in time to the Jewish captivity in Babylon. Babylon. And so the great pyramids of Giza, he knew about those. He knew about the hanging gardens in Babylon. He knew about the great colossus in Rhodes, a statue so large that ships could sail through its legs. But he knew about this temple of Artemis, and he said, this is the greatest wonder of the ancient world. That's how significant Ephesus was. That's how gripped by this paganism, by this idolatry, Ephesus was. And so Paul stayed there, and he preached to these people. And he faced this opposition. Again, Acts 19 tells us about his opposition from Demetrius, uh, that we have this uh, uh, Paul preaching, the church is beginning to grow. And there's a realization, and this is the first realization, that if the church begins to thrive in our town, we're going to lose business. And so there's a great riot that's talked about in Acts 19. 25,000 people went to the, the, the uh, amphitheater there. And the ruins are there today still. You can see how large it was in this riot, crying out, great is Artemis to the Ephesians. That was their message. That's what they thought. That was the battle that Paul had. Eventually, Paul would leave. But as we think about who Ephesus was, who the people were, think now about that little body of believers who lived in Ephesus. They lived in a place of great hostility. They struggled in a place where they were challenged relentlessly, Undoubtedly, they suffered great challenges, persecutions, financial disability. I mean, they would be prohibited from participating in the various guilds. So they might lose their business or ability to make a living. This was the nature of the suffering that the Christians in Ephesus would eventually endure. And that's the world to which Paul writes. And so when we look at this book of Ephesians, I think we see in it a city and a church very much like our own. The city of Ephesus is much like Denver or any modern American town or town around the world. It's a town full of its own religions. It's a town full of people that reject what the Christian message is, the gospel itself. It's a town of people who live in immorality. It's a town of people who uh, live in such a way that it makes it a real challenge for us as believers To live in the same community with them. Now I know there's this impetus a lot of us feel sometimes. We'd love to live in a place where everybody's a lot like ourselves. Where we just have a nice happy place where everybody in town are Christians. They all go to church. They all treat each other that way. And that would be a lovely thing. But in this world we live in, we don't get to do that. We live here in Denver where we can be in this church today and feel comfortable. But when we leave on Sunday and go out to the workplace on Monday, we live real challenges and the temptations all around us, and that's who this Ephesian church was. And so now Paul, later in his career, when he's now in Rome in prison, writes back to his church in Ephesus. He writes this letter to them. Now this is the first letter we have in the New Testament to the Ephesians. But do you know there's a second letter? Who knows about the second letter? In Revelation chapter 2, there's a letter there that John writes to the Ephesians, and he writes to them and he says that this one thing i have against you that you've left your first love the ephesians in john's day which is now probably forty years after paul wrote this first letter to the ephesians john writes and says this is a church that has now left its first love now john himself was a pastor there he had grown in this church he had taught in this church he's now exiled in patmos when he writes this letter But he writes this letter recognizing that even a church founded by an apostle, taught by the apostles themselves, Paul and John and many others, undoubtedly themselves, even that church could fall away from the faith, can fall away from their first love. And I think that's a message for all of us as well. Uh, No matter where we're at in our lives, we have to keep looking into the future and recognize that our future is bound up in our participation in the church in this church family, in our love one for another, and that eventually our life in Christ will have its ultimate and final destiny. And so when John writes to the Ephesians, he's warning them, be careful about falling away. Stay on task. Stay with your first love. And so what does Paul say to this church? When he writes to the church of the Ephesians, he writes to them, challenging them, reminding them of what life is like. And how we need to live it. Now there's one great theologian, B.B. Warfield, who wrote about the point of, uh, of the Ephesians. And he says that what we see in Ephesians are three emphases that matter to all of us. The first is the heart. He writes to the heart. He writes to the hands. And he writes to the head. To the heart we mean our love of God, our devotion to God and to one another. And a lot of us want to emphasize the heart side of it. We need to be a body of believers who looks after one another, who loves one another, who cherishes each other, the one is of the New Testament. Then there are those who look to the hands. Those are the people who serve. Those are the people who do things. And we all need people to do things, to serve. And so Warfield talked about the hands. But there's also the head, the intellectual side, the thinking side. All of us need to be balanced in one way with each of these three elements. And so if you're all heart, all love, without any biblical side to it, it can become a doctrineless piety. You look spiritual, but there's no substance to it. And I know many believers, I mean, they, they, they're Christians, they follow Christ, but they have little use for theology itself, which they think simply divides, doesn't matter the first thing Paul does when he writes the Ephesians is remind him that theology matters. Then on the other hand, there's those who are are so intellectual, who are so committed to the books and to studying, that all they do is the thinking about what it all says. But there's no love in their hearts. There's no passion. There's no service in them. And so for them, they can have a, a doctrinal aridity about them. They're very dry, very disconnected. And so what Warfield talks about is our need, all of us, to be both people of the heart, And hands and head. And so Ephesians gets us down that road. Now we come to it, and I've only broken up this Ephesians into these four concerns that Paul has, these four points that we have. And frankly, the four points were not hard to come up with. Paul's letter is so clear and so logical, and the divisions so uh, understandable, that it was quite easy to divide it up. But I had to think about what was Paul really trying to get at? And we think about the fact that Paul is writing this message to his people in the heart of the pagan world. In Ephesians, we see the message that we need to hear today. Now, this is a church that believes in preaching. We believe in studying the word. We preach through, as we've done through Ephesians. Through 25, 26 sermons in Ephesians, we will think about what Paul said. But now let's just step back and think about the whole letter. If, for example, and I've got a Civil Civil War letter at home from a distant relative in the Civil War. And it's a man who writes to his wife in Missouri, and he talks about being in the camp of Schofield in Missouri as they're traveling. Uh, And it's uh, it's cold winters coming on. Uh, They're fearful of food. So he writes this relatively long letter to his wife and to his children, hoping they can make it through the winter, set aside enough firewood to survive. It's a very moving, passionate letter. And you can imagine the wife that received on the other end, who reads this letter, Undoubtedly, she read the whole letter through completely the first time. And then she went back and looked at it again and reread it the next day. What she didn't do was read the first sentence of it and then put it aside for a week. And I'll get to the rest of it and then come back the next week and read the next sentence of it and put it aside. She read the whole letter so she could absorb the big idea of everything being said. And so let's simply think about what we've already known. We've looked at the trees for the past four or five months. We've seen the details of it. We can't see the details today. We're going to see the high-level view of what Paul is talking about. And the first thing he wants us to know is that we must comprehend our new life in Christ. The first thing Paul does in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is to lay out a theological, doctrinal basis for what is our duties and obligations as believers. And so he lays this theological grounding. He says, you have a new life in Christ. And so beginning in verses uh, uh, 3 and following, he talks in great detail about who we are in Christ, how blessed we are, how we're adopted and justified in Christ. What we see Paul doing so clearly in Ephesians is laying out what we might call the grammar to the gospel. The grammar of the gospel begins first with what's called the indicative mood. And in chapters one, two and three, he uses the indicative, which is simply statements of fact, statements. There's only one imperative we'll find in the first three chapters. and that comes, I think, in 2:11, where he says, "Remember who you were." The only imperative he has is to remember who you were and where you came from. Otherwise, all Paul talks about is who we are now as Christians, who we are as believers what it means now to us. And so he gives us this grammar. Now, if you were to study a foreign language and try and learn it, you might learn a list of vocabulary words. But you couldn't get by in that language if all you learned were the nouns. If all you had were the nouns as your lexical uh, basis, you couldn't speak very well to people. You could point like a two-year-old and just make references. You have to also learn the verbs. But then you have to know how to put everything together. And so grammar is very important. The grammar of the gospel is first, know who you are. And so in this, he talks about who we are. And now we don't have time to look through these verses in detail, but notice verse 4, 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then he says we, we were chosen in him before the foundations of the world that we might be holy and blameless. This is a discussion of what it means When you became a believer, who you really are, what your identity really is. That's the grammar of it. But notice also, there's something we might call this this, uh, identity. He writes to them, again, as uh, Melissa read, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. You see the word in there twice. You're in Ephesus and you're in Christ. We are in Denver, and we are in Christ. That is the nature of who we are. That's our geography. That's where we live. And so on Sundays, we celebrate our living together in Christ. On Mondays through the rest of the week, we battle with the fact that we still live in Denver, in Colorado. And that's a challenge we all have. But we must never forget that these tie together in us, that we have a passport that's not simply one from the United States or from wherever you might be, Other countries, but we have a passport that comes from heaven itself. And that is a great promise we have to know who we are, what our identity is. Uh, There is uh, a question that many of us face, and that's to ask the question when did God first start loving us? Was it when you started taking on religion in your life? Did God start loving you first when you started showing up for church? Did God first love you when you started reading your Bible and participating in church? No. What Paul tells the Ephesians is he loved them before the foundations of the world. From the beginning of time, he knew who you were, and he put his love in your life, on you, before you were born. And that means that God knew sin would come into the world And that means that God knew that he would have to send Christ as our Savior before the foundations of the world, before he created anything. He already knew who you were and who I am and where we would be this day. And so to the Ephesians, they could look back and say, all of history doesn't culminate in me, but certainly from the beginning of history, God knew who I was. And so we have this great identity in Christ. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Who Am I? And in this book, it's a very short book, and if you've read Jerry Bridges, you know how good writer he is. Uh, You should read everything he's written. But he writes about who am I? And he talks about our identity, knowing who we are. And you might be in a a foreign country, traveling around. Uh, If you've been to Europe or you've been to Asia, you feel like you're in a very foreign land. But as long as you know who you are, you can find your way back home. And so Paul writes, giving us our identity, we are in Christ, we are redeemed, we are adopted, we are participating in God's family here. That's who we are. And so the first message he brings is to comprehend our new life in Christ. And that begins in chapter 1, verse 3, and goes through chapter 2, verse 10. And all through chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, at work in the sons of disobedience. But verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so our identity is a people who enjoy the benefits of God's grace and have been saved because of that. So there's first our new life. Secondly, we see a celebration of our participation in the family of God. Paul, having now established in the first section that we are part in Christ, now reminds the Ephesians that they are part of a family. And so in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11, he talks about the fact that you were Gentiles living according to the flesh, but now you are one body united together with all of those who are God's people. And he makes this message message to this body that was so diverse in so many ways, that suffered so many challenges undoubtedly because of the places they came from, the thought patterns they had in the distant past. And he reminded them that whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you came out of paganism, wherever you came from, you are now one in Christ. And that's this powerful message we see, that we, we have this message of peace being preached to them. And this continues on as we get to verse uh, chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant to you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. He now recognizes that we are part of this family, and part of a family, and he uses these various metaphors, we are a family, we are each a stone in a building with Christ as a chief cornerstone. We are branches on the vine. All of these are images that they've talked about in the early churches to remind ourselves that we are rooted in Christ, but we're all still part of this one entity, this one body called the church, the body of Christ himself, the family that we have together. Then we come to chapter 4, and here now is the first big break. The grammar of the gospel begins in chapters 1, 2, and 3 by laying out who we are, redeemed, adopted, justified in Christ, and then we're part of a family, we're part of a body together. Only now does he now turn to the imperatives. When you come to chapter 4, then he begins a process of telling us what we should do. And so the third great concern that Paul has is we must commit to higher standards of unity and purity. Commit to these higher standards of unity and purity. And he writes to them again in chapter 4. Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called, and one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He goes on in chapter 4 to talk about what our new life is. And how we now live this new life. And the meaning of this unity. We see here now the grammar of the gospel Changing. The first begins with the indicatives, who you are, and now he turns to the imperatives, the things we must do. Now, I don't know what your experience may have been in the churches you grew up in. Um, I, I grew up with a lot of great faithful believers. But in some ways, some of the churches that I grew up with were churches that emphasized the imperative. They emphasized what you had to do, what you had to stop doing, what you had to think, and how you had to live in great detail. And I think for a lot of new believers and for many who are older believers still, you struggle with all of these details and you begin to feel like I can't live up to that. I can't do all of these things that you say I must do and I've stopped doing the things I, I feel tempted to do. And there's this battle that goes on and that's because we get the cart before the horse. We get the imperatives before the indicatives. The obligations we have before an understanding of who we are. And that's where we must think about who we really are, what the imperatives are. But as Paul does this, he begins to now emphasize that there must be this unity in the church. We have to love one another. And there's a story that's uh, told of a, a man who is feeling suicidal, and so he walks himself out to a bridge over a deep river, a long, and he sits on the bridge, ready to jump off. When another man happens upon him, and says, "Wait, wait, wait." Don't jump. Don't jump. You have hope. The guy says, I have no hope in my life. I have nothing to look forward to. And the man asked him, do you believe in God or are you an atheist? And the guy on the bridge said, I believe in God. Good. Are you a Christian or a Jew? And the man said, I'm a Christian. Good. Me too. Me too. The man asked him, are you a Protestant or are you a Catholic? He says, I'm a Protestant. Good, good. Me too. Me too. Which denomination Protestant are you? Are you Episcopal? Are you Methodist? Are you Presbyterian? Are you Baptist? And the man on the bridge says, I'm a Baptist. And the guy answered, That's good, good, me too. Which kind of Baptist are you? Are you a Southern Baptist, a Northern Baptist, a Reformed Baptist? And the guy on the bridge said, I'm a Reformed Baptist. And the guy said, Good, good, me too. But which kind of Reformed Baptist are you? Are you a Reformed Baptist that holds the Confession of 1689 or a Reformed Baptist that holds the Confession of 1801? And the man on the bridge says, I'm a Reformed Baptist that holds the Confession of 1801. And the guy that pushed him off the bridge and said, die, heretic. (laughs) And you see, there's that disunity that comes when we think that we have the only way. We are the only way. But we have to now recognize that even in our diversity of understanding, the gospel still calls us to this unity, to be one in Christ. And so we may disagree over doctrine, and we must discuss it, and we must figure out what we need to believe, what we believe the Bible clearly teaches. But we understand that there may be differences. But still, these differences can be looked over on so many of these secondary and tertiary issues. You think about what unity is. Unity can come... We think about numbers, one, two, and three. The number one represents unity. And in the Bible, we talk about one. There's one God. And unity is in the one. One. And there's a lot of churches that you can go to and be a part of where everybody is one. There's a unity there, but they're all alike. They all believe exactly the same thing. They've been conditioned to think there's only one way, and it's their way. And I know they have their hearts in the right place, but, but when you see a church like that, you feel there's something wrong with it, that there is the only way. And they like march in lockstep like we see the North Koreans do when they make those fake parades. They all do things the exact same way. And if you don't march exactly in lockstep like they do, then you're not one of us. And so we say, no, that's the wrong kind of unity. That's a kind of unity that's oppressive. That's a kind of unity that, that stamps out our individuality, who we really are, what we really think. And so we think of the number two. The number two is the diversity. There's me and there's you, there's them and us. And so we have this diversity. And we think diversity is good. Differences of opinions. We can come together and think about what the scriptures teach and what it's like to be a Christian. But sometimes if you think only of the two, there's me and there's all of you, there's my way and there's your way, which translates into there's my way or the highway, then the two can become very divisive. And we can think that there's only that division. We're always fighting with others to try and convince them to be like me. Basically, we're trying to push them back into the unity of the one. But then there's the three, which is a combination of one and two. And that's where we see this unity in diversity. And that is illustrated in the Trinity, where we have God, the Son, and the Spirit. We have God, who is a unity, but God the Father, who's not this solid unity all by himself, but participates in this Trinity. And so we have God as the love, the lover. We have Christ as the beloved. And we have the spirit which mediates the love between the unity of the Godhead and us. And the Holy Spirit comes down and brings to us this unity in our diversity, in our differences, our different cultures, our different ways of thinking, the different places we come from. And you think about this Acts chapter 2. When the church got started, people came from all over the world to Jerusalem and those that believed were from all over. And Luke, when he writes Acts, Acts chapter 2, talks about all these places people came from. But they were one, united in Christ. And we gather together as believers. If you've ever been to a pastor's conference or a, a Bible conference of some kind, and I've been to a number of them, you'll find people come from all over the world. People from uh, the Philippines, from South Korea, Indonesia, or from the various African Uh, countries. And sometimes Europeans that all come together in one place. And they all have their different nationalities, their different languages. But they understand that together in this place, we are united one together in Christ. And so Paul pushes this idea of this unity, even in our diversity, in our differences. And he sees, even in these believers, a way that we have to live. He even talks about the spiritual gifts in another place in Corinthians. That we all have different gifts. A lot of times we think that if, if you have the gift of service, that you're the one who goes out and does all the serving. Somebody else has the gift of teaching, and that's all they do is teaching. And it's not hard for us to begin to think that perhaps my gift is the important one. And, and, and the serving people think that if all of you others who just want to read the Bible and talk about in Bible studies, would just get out and serve and do things, the church would be better. While those who are in the Bible studies and studying and thinking, uh, they're thinking, all those people do is go out and serve. They never sit down and read God's word. Well, we need this unity with all of our different spiritual gifts. And that's how Paul is building out this church in Ephesus. And the fourth thing he does is talk about cultivating our relationships. In our relationships with one another, uh, we have a need to develop them. Now, I have a quote here I've given to you. Let me read it, and then I'll try and figure out where it came from. It reads, In family life, love is the oil that eases friction, the cement that binds us closer together, and the music that brings harmony. Now, this is a quote that I uh, logged some time ago, and I don't know where it came from. It's sometimes attributed to an atheist philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, and I just don't think he said that. But I don't know where it comes from. But I think it's a good idea. There's a great thought here that what love does. When there's friction, love is the oil that smooths all of that out. That love is also that which draws us together. It's a cement that binds us closer together. And it's a music that brings harmony. We can live harmoniously in love. And so we see this in our relationships. And as uh, Alex in the prior week and Alan did last week talked about our relationships as husbands and wives, as children, as workers, as servants together in the body of Christ. He's talking about what it means to be united together. There's a a Puritan, William Perkins, who talked about the spreading of the message, that there's a sermons being preached, and sometimes it lands on good soil that harvests well, and sometimes it lands on rocky soil, that whenever he preached, he knew they would land on various types of soil. And sometimes a servant who's uh, spreading seed is good at throwing the seed. He lands it always on the good soil. But other times, maybe a kid who's not experienced lands it all over the place. And you may be here today and you think that, uh, you know, I'm here. I came because uh, I was kind of forced to come. I'm here for a birthday of a relative or whatever it might be. And you really didn't want to be here and you don't really believe all of this. You don't really think that this makes any sense. And so you're here out of obligation, but not because it meant anything to you. Others of you who are here are here because, well, I've heard the gospel. I'm not sure I believe it, but I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to be taught. I'm willing to think through it. And you're kind of experiencing one another, thinking about what is this church really all about? Others might be here and you're thinking, you know, I believe this gospel and it's changed my life. It's made me who I am but maybe my first love has kind of fallen away. Maybe I see in my life where I've kind of broken down from my commitment to what I know I should be doing, how I should be participating, who I should be. Wherever we're all at, and we're all at different places perhaps, all of us now from this letter that Paul writes, sees in it the message that Paul gives, that we are unique in Christ. That's our identity. He has given us these riches, that we are a family together. We have obligations to serve one another, to work this out, and in our relationships to cultivate all of that. Because it's in your relationships here in the church with this family that you will have people you can be with when times do get rough, when there is challenges in life. And that's, I think, what Paul's message is. So I would encourage you, before we finish preaching this in the next few weeks, to go back through Ephesians, read through the letter each day, kind of tying it all together, summing it all up, getting the big feel of where it went, how Paul get to where we're at. And I think then we see how impactful Ephesians is, how it does speak to us in the 21st century where we're at. The life isn't all about us. It's really all about what Christ has done for us and our life in Christ, in God, in this family together. Will you stand with me as we pray? Our Father, as we come before you, we think about this great message that Paul has written to this little church in Ephesus, a church of believers who struggled with difficulties, struggled with the culture they were in, but knew there was great unity in this church in Christ. And so, Lord, we aspire to be these types of believers who love one another, care for one another, recognizing that we are together in Christ, in you. Dismiss us now with your blessing, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.